Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society, and we bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human, we have blind spots and biases, and they will show through, but our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think we can do that, using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Now, we are going to take an educated guess here and assume that you have probably heard of tonight's topic, critical race theory. And we're also going to assume that you've probably been hearing about it almost constantly for more than a year. It's a deep and nuanced subject, and everyone from former President Trump to the leader of the Southern Baptist Convention to your Uncle Pete at the 4th of July barbecue has an opinion on it. And just about every issues-focused podcast, social media channel, or even news channel has their own explanation of what it is. That's why, tonight, we're taking a different approach. Yes, we want to make sure we give you a good enough understanding of what CRT is that you can have informed and reasonable conversations. But when it comes to something as experiential as CRT is for many people, just spitting names and dates and statistics at you isn't going to help you really absorb the idea. This is one of those topics that you have to feel to know and to make decisions about. So we're going to try to teach you about CRT the good old fashioned way through storytelling. In case you have been fortunate enough to miss all the brouhaha around CRT, it's only fair to give you a little working definition to attach while we flesh out the story. I just want everyone listening to know that I tainted my search algorithm yet again to get a look at some of the wilder explanations of CRT. I did that for you, dear listener, <laughs> for you. Honestly, defining CRT is a, it's a big undertaking. The problem is that it's not any single methodology or tactic or course. So there's a lot of wiggle room for people to append whatever they believe to the CRT bucket. My son's teacher said the Civil War wasn't about states' rights. That's CRT. My daughter came home asking questions about why black people are protesting. Stupid teachers talking CRT. There are a lot of people, like a lot, a lot, that seem to think that any mention of race or ethnicity is somehow critical race theory. I'm not going to lie. 
I often see it from the same people who abuse the hell out of the Martin Luther King Jr. quote from his I have a dream speech. You know the one. You don't know the one? I can show you the one. Freedom and justice, I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. Yeah, that one. People love to post that and say things like, we shouldn't be talking about race. It just makes the problem worse. Or none of this was an issue until people started talking about it. Or my personal favorite, Back in my day, we didn't care if you were black, red, brown, yellow, or turquoise as long as you did your job. Or some other thing just about as fitting in with society and not making a fuss and generally being a good human being. But that last one especially, about back in my day, seems to unironically come from the people who were alive for the passing of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 and somehow didn't put two and two together, I guess. I mean... We digress. We could do a whole episode on the problems with not seeing color as it's currently used. And we kind of did talk about that in our arguments against systemic racism and this whole idea of colorblind theory. But the point here is that the general theme that we see from people who are upset about the idea of CRT is that it actually makes America worse for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's by teaching kids or people that America is bad or evil or that white children should feel guilty about how their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather treated his slaves, or that society would be fine if we all just stopped talking about race and let people be people. They seem to believe that CRT is slowly dragging America down the road toward ruination. Largely, they believe that racism is dead and gone, and no longer a real threat to the black and indigenous people of color who live in the United States. But... For those of you who have listened to this show from the start, you know that this isn't the case, or at least you've seen us prevent evidence to support the claim that racism is still alive and well, and we've presented that evidence over and over and over and over and over and over again. No, racism is, is, it's not a personal feeling from me to you most of the time. That's what a lot of people like to say it is. And by thinking that, by thinking, well, it's a personal feeling, they, they can sort of convince themselves that racism is dead because they personally don't have that feeling. I don't feel any sort of way towards a black person. But this really is just a, um, a coddling of their ego. They don't want to be convicted to use a term from the church, <laughs> with these feelings. They don't want to have to face that because that means that they would, quote unquote, be a bad person. And they're not. They know they're not because they don't hate these. They don't hate black people, right? That's not what it is. We've talked about it in a bunch of different episodes. Go back and listen to our first like three or four and you'll get way more than you would ever wanted to know about it. Um, but it's much more... In the modern day, it's much more like um, like a wound that was left to fester. Some attempts have been made to lance it and drain the corruption so true healing can take place, but they were half measures. 
and the job was never seen through to completion because it seemed that enough had been done. But still, the wound festers. Now, we could let the wound continue to fester. We could ignore it and continue to act as if everything were fine and, and were healing. We may even be able to fool ourselves or others that this is the case, that it is healing for a time. But in that time, the corruption continues to eat away at the body. If we continue to ignore it, the wound will eventually poison the body and the body will die. The only way we can cure that, the only way we can cure this wound is to clean it out. And if you've ever had a deep infection, like a cavity, for example, you know what that means. It's painful and unsettling. It's gross and putrid work, really. Oftentimes, it temporarily leaves the wound looking worse than it did before. It usually hurts more right after because the wound has been left raw and open from the cleansing and removal of the dead tissue. Sometimes it actually looks worse after the corruption has been removed, at least for a time. If you didn't know what was happening, you might be justified in wondering why such torture was being inflicted. Why were the doctors making it worse? But the truth is that it's only after the doctors do that hard and painful work that the true healing can actually begin. Healthy muscle and tissue will begin to reclaim the wound, and then when it closes, it'll be far better than when the corruption was slowly killing the body. Our society is a body with deep, festering wounds, and they were inflicted so long ago that we can hardly recognize the pain and the anguish that they're causing. Some of us think that the pain is just a part of society, and that addressing it would be what makes it worse, and it's best to just soldier through. Maybe those people are afraid of the upheaval that addressing the pain would cause, or they've gotten used to working with or around the pain, and fixing it would likely change a lot about how our society functions. It's a scary concept. But it's not the corruption that makes our society bad or evil. It doesn't mean that we should be ashamed of our society any more than we're ashamed when we get injured or when we have a cavity. There's no shame in acknowledging that hurt. However, refusing to address that wound out of fear is shameful. Inaction is the only course that we can take that will surely kill our society eventually. Excising that wound, removing the corruption, and preparing the way for healing is the only sure way to build a better society. And to that end, CRT is a scalpel. It's a tool. It's something designed to help explore and evaluate the impacts that the wound of racism is causing in our society and to help drain and clean that wound, ultimately for the better. CRT holds that race matters because of its systemic nature, that there are consistent reminders of it, and that an inherent white ownership of American cultural and legal doctrine requires that any progress in social equity must benefit non-minorities also. More simply, we can't just ignore race. We can't just be colorblind because it's inherent in our society due to the very way our society was built. Remember, a law doesn't magically mean that the ideologies that stated that one race was inferior to another suddenly vanished 
and were never passed on to a new generation again. Unfortunately, those ideas survived and parents educated their children. Bosses educated their employees. Leaders educated their followers. And these ideas were and are woven more subtly into our day-to-day lives than before, but still woven in. Our BIPOC citizens are constantly reminded of things being just a little different for them. From disproportionate prison sentences or poor health outcomes or lower levels of, of generational wealth, and even if laws and changes are made to improve those situations, they're often enacted by a majority white governing body. Or the change is beholden to public opinion, which is dominated by a majority white population. Meaning that changes often have to benefit both BIPOC and white populations in order for them to pass, or the majority voices, the people who dominate these conversations, won't let it happen because they don't receive any benefit from it. Unfortunately, the laws that are written that way aren't necessarily equitable. In fact, they are almost guaranteed not to be equitable because equity doesn't mean everybody gets the same treatment. Equity means everybody gets the treatment they need to get to the same level, to get on the same playing field, to reach the same starting line. CRT theorists argue that laws, education, and integration may alter race relations, but they don't eradicate racial discrimination. It's not that there has been no change in race relations. Obviously, things have changed. But the theory holds that race still matters and that BIPOC are the recipients of differential treatment in society. Only by consciously working to study these effects to perform both quantitative analysis, which is analysis that basically tries to answer the question of how much and qualitative analysis, which is analysis that answers questions like what, what kind? Only by doing both quantitative and qualitative analysis on how race plays a role in our world, from, from evaluating our school teachers to lending practices, only by doing that can we truly understand what is happening and what needs to be done to fix it. At its core, CRT is looking to find not just if race is playing a role in whatever societal effect we're seeing or whatever, whatever rule is being issued, whatever law has just been passed. It's also trying to look at how large that role is. CRT theorists hold that only by undertaking this analysis intentionally and purposefully can we lance the wound that continues to fester in our society. I feel like that was a solid primer. I think so. Yeah. Since I wrote it. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. So let's get into the actual story part of this. Where did this stuff come from? Where did CRT come from? Because... It's actually kind of crazy. 
I think it is. there's there's the best fake it till you make it line I've ever seen. Yes. <laughs> involved yes. here. Uh, and we'll like that is literally the best quote from the entire episode. And, and we'll get to that in a minute. But like so many other things that we talk about on this show. There's so much more to critical race theory and how it developed than you're going to hear reported on the news. And so in order to really help everybody who's listening understand and get a base for where where this theory came from so that in later episodes we can talk about what it means in practice, we, we get to do that thing that we love to do, and that's go back in time a little bit and, and tell a great historical narrative. All right, we're hopping in the time machine. Let's go. The swells of civil rights activism that characterized the 1960s in America and led to the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 created in many people of color and the advocates and the allies who stood with them a growing optimism that our country may be on a progressive path, an irreversible evolution destined to fully integrate black Americans into the real American way of life. But it wasn't long before those victories began to slow and stagnate, leaving scholars and activists and lawyers wondering where things had gone wrong, and leaving people of color to face the reality that those big victories that they had won were really only victories for those who had the access to fight for their Americanism on legal grounds. One of the scholars doing the work of finding the way forward was a man named Derek Bell, Bell had made his name in the Deep South, overseeing school desegregations in the name of the NAACP and the legend that was Thurgood Marshall. He stood his ground before racist judges and spent time in a Mississippi jail as he pushed with other civil rights leaders toward what should have been the tipping point of black equity. But instead, he saw the hard lines of the legislation that he and others had fought so hard to pass reduced to soft lines in the sand as white families took their kids and their funding out of newly desegregated schools and black teachers and administrators lost their jobs for their activism or to schools that had closed for a lack of enrollment. Well, white enrollment. He began to believe that these big legal accomplishments were not actually concrete victories but represented instead the illusion that the law could effectively serve the real best interests of the marginalized. Black parents, he wrote in one essay, wanted good schools, whether they were integrated or not. The illusion provided by Brown v. the Board of Education was that desegregated schools would equal good schools, but in practice, that was not the reality. And he set himself to producing work that would produce better advocacy for the actual benefit of the marginalized in America. In 1969, he took a position as the first black faculty member at Harvard Law School. It wasn't long before he was the university's first tenured black professor. He produced a course on civil rights law, published a highly respected casebook called Race, Racism, and American Law, and generated a stream of law review articles. He built a conceptual framework that drew from something called critical law studies, which approached legal issues with the belief that the law and our legal system are not always objective, apolitical, or unbiased. 
critical law studies, CLS, recognized that people experience the legal system differently depending on who they are. I mean, we all know that. It's in the news every day in American society. We yell about it all the time. <laughs> Look at how the rich get away with, well, everything. <laughs> but I mean, like, skipping out on their taxes, mm -hmm. right? They are wealthy enough to afford the means to avoid paying that, sometimes illegally, almost always. Um, and when they get caught, they either end up paying a fine or they go to prison for a almost insultingly short amount of time. Right. Right? But if you or I did that, we can't afford the best lawyers in the world to defend us. We can't afford to drag a case out forever. We're going to go to jail a long time or we're going to face a much, a proportionately much higher fine. Case in point. Anyway, Bell shared that belief. He recognized that and he understood it and he shared that belief. But added to it the idea that racialized people experience the law and society in very different ways than white people do on top of that. But Bell could not seem to achieve authentic inclusion for himself at this institution that, that symbolized the epitome of professional achievement. And in 1980, he took another position and left Harvard the first time. <laughs> After Bell left Harvard, the question of who would teach the new courses he created loomed large. Students of color wanted the courses to be taught by black professors, but the university's hiring record was mm, seriously lacking in diversity. Shocking. Taking up the mantle of activism, Student organizations like the Black Law Students Association, La Alianza, and the Third World Collective lobbied and negotiated with Harvard to provide a more substantive curriculum regarding race and law, and to hire more faculty members of color. They were offered a three-week course on civil rights. But that wasn't good enough, obviously, <laughs> and they didn't stop fighting. They boycotted other classes and events, held a school-wide referendum that showed that more than 75% of students supported their cause and even threatened to sue the university for discriminatory practices. Still, all of those tactics ultimately failed. In January of 1983, on the first day of class, students organized a protest outside the room where the professors, one black and one white, would be teaching that civil rights course. And while the protest inspired claims of reverse racism against the white professor, the students maintained that their protest of the course was a reflection on the overall hiring practices of the university. One student, identified in a 1983 New York Times article as Kim, but better known to us as Kimberly Crenshaw, said, This whole charge of reverse racism has done what it was intended to do, to obscure the real issue. At that time, Harvard Law School employed 60 tenured professors, only one of whom was black, and only one of whom was a woman. Sorry, you said reverse racism? Totally forgot to mention it in the top of the episode, and I had an aneurysm immediately. <laughs> I just hate that phrase so much. I hate it. 
All right. Moving were, on. Were you going to content warning people? No. Like what? No. Who were you I just in the like beginning? it would. No, it's just a great CRT is oftentimes uh, linked to this idea that it teaches reverse racism right. because it's like meant to make white people feel bad about ourselves. Right. I don't feel like even knowing all of this history and the stuff that we've studied, I don't think any genuinely concerned white person would feel bad about themselves being white. They would feel compelled to do something about it. Right. But a lot of people can't handle this idea. <laughs> and so yeah. they they get the guilt. They get the guilt. They get yes. the guilt real bad and they don't want to think about it. Following Sorry. that. No, that's great. That is a good detour and um almost like it could bunny trail us super hard and we won't let it because there's so much more to talk about. But I really want to. I really want to bunny yeah, trail so hard. Yep. <laughs> okay, back to our story. <laughs> Following that protest, Crenshaw and Mari Matsuda and several other students made the decision to boycott that civil rights course and develop a 14-week alternative course using Derrick Bell's book, Race, Racism, and American Law. The course was funded by student organizations and featured a different scholar or legal practitioner with a minority perspective at each class meeting. In this particular way, the course was designed to prove that talented and qualified minority legal scholars did exist and were willing to teach interested students about racism and the developments of civil rights litigation. And because the course was supported by Harvard professors who shared a critical legal studies perspective, students were able to earn independent credits for taking it. They may not have recognized it at the time, but the alternative course was in many ways the first formalized expression of what would become critical race theory. Still, though, the university continued to stall in the face of demand for a more diverse faculty. In response to a question about what faculty members were doing to educate themselves about the legal needs of women and minorities, one professor named Philip Heyman responded, no one ever told you to come to Harvard Law School to learn how to be a woman or to learn how to be black. Those are terribly important things in life, but this isn't the place for you to come to learn them. And from that point on, it became abundantly clear to all of those who had dedicated their time and their energy to organizing protests and negotiations and the alternative course that what they had created was real and valid but it would require their continued activism to bring it to reality. I think a lesson that has been learned by many people many times over in our society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately. So as they continued their studies and eventually their careers, these students, these student activists kept asking the hard questions about the law and society and race kind of here at fireside we're following in their footsteps to an extent by having these conversations or at least trying to in a way Mm -hmm. as she reflected on the way that critical race theory came into fuller being during the mid-1980s crenshaw remembered crowded hotel rooms filled with others who shared her questions and concerns and who met together at 
um, CLS-focused conferences to discuss how these principles affected people of color. In advance of one such conference, Crenshaw says she and other women of color met to discuss how they might want to participate. They decided to offer a workshop, which would divide attendees into breakout groups and ask them to use the principles of uh, critical law studies. Ooh, got there. <laughs> I'm bad with acronyms, guys. I'm so bad with them. Uh, ask them to use the principles of CLS to reflect on their own experiences. The question they asked workshop attendees to answer was, what is it about the whiteness of critical legal studies that keeps people of color at bay? Naturally, this call to critical reflection was met with resistance. And Crenshaw says this was especially so from, can you guess who resisted this most? I'll give you like three more seconds. Yeah, white male leaders in the field. Shocker. Shocked. After more years of struggle to find the place for racial uh, examination inside of CLS, including accusations that scholars like Crenshaw and Bell were erroneously placing race at the foreground of the conversation, a group of minority scholars coalesced inside the movement, including some who were originally a part of the, the movement at Harvard. They organized into a minority caucus at the 1987 CLS conference and successfully facilitated many hard conversations on race inside of critical legal studies. It was clear that they were becoming a force to be reckoned with, but it was also clear that the framework of CLS was not enough to contain their movement. After getting tired of endless informal meetings in hotel rooms and random conferences, Crenshaw and her colleague Stephanie Phillips decided to gather their motley crew together for something more formal and to determine if they really did all share a core theory of belief that might develop into something bigger. They pulled in others like Neil Gotanda, who had participated in the alternative course, and Terry Miller, and they organized a workshop and put out a call for papers. But there was still something too undefined about their focus. They needed a name, a name that reflected that focus on race, that aimed for something beyond the basics of critical theory, a name that attracted critical scholars of color who wanted to study the broader concept of the law's relationship to race. Crenshaw and her colleagues made a list of words that conveyed their goals, like critical, progressive, race, law, jurisprudence, theory, civil rights. And when they mixed and matched them, one combination stood out. Critical race theory. That first workshop, held in July of 1989, was titled New Developments in Critical Race Theory, and no one knew who or how many people would attend. Crenshaw remembers thinking that only those few organizers really knew that there were no new developments in critical race theory because critical race theory hadn't had any old ones. It didn't exist. It was brand new and made up as a name. Sometimes you gotta fake it until you make it. Yes! <laughs> I love it. Sorry. Yes. Yes, it's the best. So they did. They faked it. 
by calling often unsolicited and asking people to apply for a workshop on this thing that they had never heard of because it had never existed before. And many people did actually apply for this workshop. Because that's academia. Yes. <laughs> right there, wrapped up in it. Right? In all, 24 scholars of color participated. And together, they made CRT what it is. During that first workshop, they examined the question of what CRT would be. And they pulled out common themes from the work of all of the attendees. And then they refined those ideas at later workshops. As time went on and more thinkers joined the fold, they spread the principles and approach of critical race theory to other fields. CRT is actively applied in scholarships surrounding education, political science, women's studies, ethnic studies, communication, sociology, and American studies, and more. Yeah. And it has produced subgroups who apply the same principles to studies of different racial groups. According to Crenshaw, they maintain a fundamentally eclectic perspective. Sure, their ideas are intellectually coherent, but the discipline has never achieved or claimed a unified school of thought. That, she says, remains a fantasy of our critics. <laughs> Something that we mentioned at the top. Right. It's not any single one thing. Right. If CRT had been growing quietly for the last 30 years, you might be wondering why there seems to be a wildfire of discussion about it in the last year. Turns out, there's a story there too. And like so many great stories, it all begins with a whistleblower email. Oh, yes. I have problems with some whistleblowers, okay? <laughs> Just because they have the title whistleblower does not mean that they have America's best interests at heart. That's all I'm going to say on that. Right. Okay. There are proper ways to blow whistles. That said. Yes. Back to our story. I just have to put that disclaimer in anytime I hear or talk about whistleblowers. Well, right. I mean, like the same concept can be applied to a pair of siblings, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're a whistleblower. Like when your sibling is in serious danger of burning down the house because they're playing with matches, you're a whistleblower. When you're just tattling, you're just tattling. You're doing something for your own benefit. Yes. Mm, that's, mm. Anyway, we've got lots about that. Moving on. So Christopher Rufo is a writer, filmmaker, investigator, and most importantly to this story, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which is a libertarian think tank organization. Basically a bunch of people who are paid to get together and talk about stuff. And one day, he received an email from a municipal employee in Seattle claiming that the city was conducting, quote, internalized racial superiority training sessions for employees. The quote ended after superiority, by the way. A freedom of information request returned evidence that he says demonstrated that this training was rampant. He wrote that Discussions in the training centered on the idea that black Americans are reducible, reductible, reducible. It's gotta he be says reducible. They're his words. It's a quote, Holmes. I don't, I don't, I know, but I don't like the mouthfeel. Black Americans are reducible to the essential quality of blackness and white Americans to the quality of 
whiteness. Though his initial report on the situation in Seattle didn't include the term critical race theory, it did draw many more whistleblowers with many more reports of this kind of diversity training. Then, a month later, Rufo wrote an article for City Journal called White Fragility Comes to Washington that opened with the line, prepare yourself. Critical race theory, the academic discourse centered on the concepts of whiteness, white fragility, and white privilege is spreading rapidly through the federal government. It's a hell of an opening line. I'm sorry, but can can we just talk about how this 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 scaffolding that was built in order to analyze law and how it affected people of color is now suddenly centered on white people and white fragility and white privilege? No. It's not what it's about. It's not what it's centered on at all. I mean, I I absolutely could make an argument about how that kind of reframing is central to whiteness. <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm done. I'm it's done. Very, it's very Tucker, Tucker Carlson. It's very reframe. Tucker Carlson. It's very Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of. Yeah. So so Rufo in that article then cites these titled, I mean, whistleblower complaints as evidence that these training programs begin with the premise that Virtually all white people contribute to racism. True story. Y'all, it's in our show notes. If you'd like to go read it. I read the whole thing. It's short. You might not die. But that article earned him a seat next to Tucker Carlson and the opportunity to address then-President Trump directly in primetime because, y'all, we all know that President Trump did not miss an episode of The Tuck. (laughs) <laughs> like I'm sorry the tuck yeah yeah that's a thing I mean it is now no no it's been a thing that's it's not we can't get that rating on our podcast we're trying to disseminate you know what moving on <clears throat> moving on <laughs> yeah so he had that opportunity fitting. to address President Trump directly in prime time and urge him to take direct action to snuff out this threat. Within three weeks of that episode, President Trump had signed an executive order banning training programs built on a foundation of CRT from federal departments and contract companies. Mainstream news outlets picked up on this spreading controversy, and according to Rufo, that's when the real fight against critical race theory began. And that, dear listener, or watcher, is mm-hmm. why you're hearing so much about it right now. You can thank the Tuck. Thank the Tuck. Thank the Tuck. I'm calling him the Tuck from now on. Yeah. I'm never not going to call mm-hmm. him the Tuck. Um, the problem is, it is so, because it is so ephemeral, because it is so easy to ascribe something to critical race theory that it that isn't there but because there's no like hard and fast definition about it you can turn it into anything you want which is what we saw that's what he did it's about whiteness and white fragility and white privilege it's not it's not about those things the only time that comes up is in the context of how does this law that was passed by a predominantly white 
governing body affect our non-white population? White fragility is something that was, I think, this is a guess. This is the opinion zone here. Welcome to the opinion zone. White fragility was something that I am fairly certain was projected onto this as Rufo and Carlson examined it, quote unquote, as they reported it. Um, because Carlson especially is a champion of grievance, I don't know, politics, grievance journalism. Oh, yeah. Being a whiny thing. Family friendly, family friendly. Being a whiny person. Yeah. He, he built his entire career on, I'm going to file a grievance. Like. Which, which well, okay. Yeah, that and his parents' money. Well, look. Sorry. Bias, bias, lots of bias here. Do not like Tucker. This is I'm sorry if you're listening to this and and you like Tucker. He is one of the most shallow thinkers I have ever seen. Ever. Yeah. He only thinks hard enough to find a way to make it about him or whatever he likes. Mm -hmm. That's all all he does. I'm not even mad that he and all of his lawyers made the argument that his show is not news, it's entertainment. Like, I'm not mad about that because, duh. Duh. No reasonable person would take anything that Tucker Carlson says as fact. That is the argument that he made, his lawyers, made in court to avoid getting in trouble. Mm -hmm. He is entertainment only and only an idiot would believe him. That is their stance. That is Fox's stance. That is Tucker's stance in court, in the legal record. Okay, he knows that his audience is going to eat up whatever he says and he fleeces them every night, period. It's it's that is what that argument means. That is what that means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to hold on to it till the end, but I think that um, I'm going to let it go now. I, I think go, that our first piece of merch should be something that I probably can't say unless we want to do a spicy edit of this episode but it would just be a word that rhymes with talk, and then it would say the talk. I'll let you imagine what that is. That is so much worse than what you originally said, Robin. What? Uh, once we're off air here, I'm going to explain to you what a talk is. I don't know. Do we have to edit out this whole segment? Should we just start over? No, no, I am leaving this in. I am 100% leaving this in because there are going to be some people out there who are dying at how adorably uninformed you are right now. All right, all right. Well, they can, you know what they can do? They can leave me a a review. They can tell me how adorably uninformed I am. I am changing the subject. That's smart. That's smart. But y'all, no, I am woefully uninformed on a lot of things. And if there are a lot of things that you would like to tell me about, you can do so by, there's a lot of ways. There's a lot of ways. You can find us on Instagram and on Facebook just by searching Fireside Breakdowns. But what's the best way? They could go to our website. I was going to say something else about social. Hold on, we'll get there. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to talk about the fact that we have already posted four Instagram posts this week for and one story, and we're getting ready to round out today's stories, and there's going to be so many more stories. Why? Because we got our shit together in order to build a brand new website. Yeah! Okay, sorry. 
And that Which is people another. who listened last week already knew. Right, exactly. But we're going to keep celebrating for forever because we can. Forever. For forever. Um, <laughs> for forever. Because we can. If you would love to leave us a longer form comment, you can do that on our brand new website. There's a contact page and it tells you exactly how much we would love to hear from you. And it gives you a super easy way to actually do that while you're on the website. You could explore all 42 of season one's episodes. 42. Uh, you could listen to last week's episode because all of our episodes currently live on our site. And we are in the process of uploading no fewer than 40 because there were a few episodes that we just kind of talked to you about, but no fewer than 40 like academic research paper length show notes. I mean, I was going to try to total up all of the sources and all of the pages of research that we did for a fun social media post. There was just no way to do that. I just don't have the time to do all of the math. But you can explore incredibly detailed show notes that read almost like a script for the podcast if you'd rather read than listen, and also include every single one of our sources that we refer to all throughout the episode. Um, what else can you do there? You can read other things that we've written, because sometimes we write other stuff that is not this podcast occasionally. That lives there too. You can learn more about us. There's so many things that you can do on our website. Oh yeah, I'm being told that I'm supposed to tell you that you can give us money. You can give actually us your do that. Yeah, we have a Patreon now, which is really cool. We have some fun tiers that are going to include awesome things like a monthly happy hour, like quarterly group deep dive research sessions, like a super awesome. It sounds super, super nerdy, but it's we, it's a lot of fun. But let's fun. be honest, who's listening to this podcast? Super, super nerdy folks. Yeah. We love you all very yeah, yeah, much. Yeah. And we can pick like super fun topics that are not deep and nerdy and just go ridiculously deep into them. That's even nerdier. Sure. Never mind. It's way nerdy. <sighs> also, we're making a Spotify we can talk playlist. talk about the financial, financial system of the Pokemon games and how it makes absolutely no sense that these kids are walking around with just so much money in their pockets all the time. There's also a handy dandy link on our website where you can leave us a review. It's on our social also, and it's in the episode description for this episode. So if you would kindly leave us a review, that would be amazing. We will read it on the air and we will make a silly pun out of your name. And I'm going to stop talking because we're in the weeds. So far, at least we're not in the forest anymore. I'm going to round us out with some good news and let you all calm folks out of here. Um, this week, we don't have a specific news article or something that caught our attention that's good news. Um, in fact, the good news is the fact that we're having this talk right now. This week's good news is a little more abstract, as is a lot of the conversation around critical race theory. Now, see, we happen to think that it's good news that CRT is being discussed in public like this. Sure, it's leading to protests and posturing. And yes, sometimes the conversations get a little violent. But here's the thing. We need to have these conversations as a society. If there's anything we've learned from the military, don't ask, don't tell doesn't really work. Especially not the way you want it to. And as we mentioned at the top of the episode, not intentionally, 
talking about how racism influences our society down to its very foundations isn't helping anything. It's allowing a wound to heal over before it's ready. And that only causes problems. We have to excise this wound. We have to go through that pain. We have to go through those steps. Because anything, anything short of trying to uproot this and actually intentionally drive the tendrils of the racist beginnings of the United States out and the racist history of the United States out. That's just allowing a wound to fester. So yes, it is good news that this is in the news. And it's scary. And it's stressful. But I think ultimately, and I think Robin agrees with me, this will lead to a better society as long as we allow ourselves to behave like adults and have a conversation about it. So, as always, that's what we encourage you to do here and we encourage everyone to do. Until next week, thank you very much for listening to us. Can't wait to see where this next year takes us. Still celebrating that. I know it's a week after we said we're a year old. Don't care. Um, and everybody, take care of each other. <laughs>